Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Hello and welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. We've got a really great episode today with an awesome guest, Taylor Collins, who I'll talk about in just a minute. But before I talk about Taylor and what he's doing, I just wanted to say a massive thank you. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast regularly. The response that I've been getting from individuals through messaging and and whatnot has been great. I love hearing what you guys are enjoying. And if there's things that you do enjoy or things you want to hear more of, please let me know. You can send me a message through Facebook or Instagram on Herd Quarter Podcast. And you can comment on some of the posts that I make, although I'm not always regular. And on on top of that, I apologize for that. But communicate with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what you're like. And one request that I would have for you is that if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please share. You know, share it with your your friends, with your family. Share it on social media so that continue to get the word of this podcast out. I'm really, you know, enjoying doing this and loving doing it. And the more people that I can reach with the guests you know, that I've been fortunate to be able to talk to. Wow, they, they've got some great things to share. I sure enjoy listening to them. And if you enjoy listening to them and learning from them, help help me share it with others by sharing with your friends, with your family on social media. Um, that's my ask, you know, just just uh, just help me share and, uh, and, and let me know what you think. And if you have guests that you'd love to hear on the podcast, let me know. Also, something that I want to do more of in time, hopefully I have some time as winter comes in here, is to share my guest plans prior to my interviews so I can get your questions for them. You know, I I think that would be really neat. So look for that in the future. But now, you know, I want to introduce our guest for today. It's Taylor Collins from Rome Ranch. He's got an awesome story of having built a food business, Epic Provisions from scratch to being a national brand, selling that brand, and then building a ranch and and doing some pretty incredible things there in Texas. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And with that, I think we'll jump into the the conversation with Taylor Collins. All right. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the Herd Quitter podcast. Really excited to have you here today. Heck yeah, Jared. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you've got a pretty awesome story, a pretty incredible thing that you and, and your family have built. But let's go back to the beginning, maybe, and talk about your history and, and this food business and, and agriculture and, and kind of bring us up to how you got to where you are today. Oh, man, this is a saga of a story, right? <laughs> it's one that I love telling around a campfire. That's yeah. where it's at. But we're going to improvise hmm. like the modern campfire a podcast. That's right. Yes. But yeah, um, you know, like I think my love of agriculture and my path in life, my journey has been greatly influenced by soil, which, you know, as a catalyst for growth and development and passion, it's not something that you hear every day. And so just kind of backing up, you know, I had a pretty typical childhood, you know, consumed standard American diet high processed foods, right? A lot of inflammatory seed oils. And that's just Mm. all, all all my family knew. And at the same time, I was, I was really into sports. I I grew up in Texas, you know, like if you're a male growing up in Texas, you're expected to play football, (laughs) baseball, track. I mean, it's like in your genetics. And so I loved competing at high levels and training. And early on, I was pretty damn good. And 
something crazy happened in 1996 where I would have been um, in seventh grade. And in 1996, uh, I had season ending injuries. So broken bones. I mean, this is no lie. 1996, broken ankle. 1997, wow. collarbone. 1998, broken ankle again. 1999, <laughs> uh, broken ribs, herniated disc. Two, uh, wow. 2000. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on broken wrist. And at no point in there, you maybe didn't stop and say, maybe, maybe this stuff isn't for me. <laughs> I, I mean, it kind of was like, this is not for me. And, and so the, the interesting part in retrospect, 1996 is when like glyphosate became uh, commonly mm-hmm. used. I mean, that's like when genetically modified foods were kind mm-hmm. of introduced to the market and glyphosate was directly sprayed onto it at quantity. And so I just started having these crazy health issues and had suffered from depression. And I mean, I had inflammatory conditions, had the worst acne I'd ever seen, uh, like crazy fungus all over my body. And you're, people who are listening to this are going to be like, this, this dude is disgusting. And I was, <laughs> I was pretty much as bad as it gets. I like look at pictures of myself back then. I'm like, oh my God, like someone should have called CPS or put me in some kind of like lab experiment. It was pretty gross. And so, but, you know, honestly, I I graduated from high school in 2001, went to college, started really connecting the dots and changing my diet, had this instinct Mm. that food could heal. And at the same time, it's when I first got introduced to gardening and soil. And my grandpa passed away, who was like the uh, patriarch in my family. He was my role model, really close. He was a talented gardener. And when he passed away, I just felt like I wanted to connect to him and honor him by tending his garden. And it was that first time that I really put my body immersed myself in soil and compost and living plants. And it transformed my biology. I feel like it, it switched, it changed epigenetics, like these deep encoded genes that were just waiting for that biological signal um, to create change and, you know, be introduced to like this biome that I was so far separated from and it was that catalyst that just changed the future of my life and got me super deep into food, super deep into soil. And, um, you know, moving forward a, a couple of years from there, started a company called Epic Provisions, which my wife and I started that. Um, it's, you know, protein bar made out of whole food, grass fed protein, you know, meats, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, we grew that company and kind of the founding pillars were how do you optimize human health? Well, we think it's, you know, consuming a diet that our ancestors evolved to consume. So meat was a big part of that diet. Well, you don't have healthy animals if you don't allow those animals to express their biological behavior. They're, you know, consume the innate um, diets that they were designed to consume. Uh, And then later on in that saga, we kind of decided like none of this happens. Human health doesn't happen. Animal health doesn't happen. If you don't have underlying soil foundational health, that's where all life begins, all life ends, and how all life, all minerals and vitamins and nutrients and biomes are enriched, it all begins in the soil. And so that was a huge inspiration for us in our journey to have this massive soil health conversation. And Epic was our avenue, our ability to tell that story on a national level directly to consumers and talk about regenerative agriculture and convert new supply chains and um, put all this on the radar. And so, you know, we sold that company in, uh, I don't even know what it was, 2016, maybe. Yeah. And then we bought Rome Ranch, which is what we're doing now and where we live now, which is a multi-species regenerative ranch in Fredericksburg, Texas. Now that, that is an awesome story and it's kind of unusual and it's kind of how it played out because a lot of times it seems like people are interested in 
ranching or production agriculture of some sort. And then as they learn more about it, they learn about soil health. You know, this is pretty neat. They, they kind of grow and expand in that. And they think, you know, I'm producing good food. And so they maybe add on some sort of a food business. Well, you kind of jump straight to the end. I mean, like recognizing the importance of food and it's important in soil, you know, it, it, it's importance in our lives and in our bodies and in its connection to soil and earth. And talk a little bit more about that transition. Like, were there specific things that helped you realize that early on? I mean, you went from having a bunch of health issues to starting a food company and that can't just happen accidentally, I imagine. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, we had some some really loud biological signals screaming at us, wake up, mm. you know, you need to change something. This is not, not working for you. And, you know, it was just through experimentation, really, and uh, seeking, being open, being receptive, looking into nature for wisdom, and really just being, having time and space to reflect uh, on our own needs and our own body. And, and, you know, like for us to get into the agricultural space and to be able to now manage land and manage animals, that was something where we would frequently visit ranches, visit farms through our experience with Epic and other food companies we started. And I mean, my wife and I are just like envious, you know, like these farmers and ranchers who live out on the land and manage their land appropriately, protect and enrich their natural resources. Like these guys in gals have it figured out like this is mm. a life like w- why would anyone <laughs> want to do anything but this and, yeah. and so that seed was always there and we saw it and we saw these families living these sure. incredible lives being outside using their bodies using their minds creating food to feed communities creating ecosystems and habitats for wild and migratory species and we just said man if we ever had the opportunity to do this we are going to go all in and kind of take mm-hmm. all of uh, all of our passion, all of our beliefs, and create like a living organism that represents our values. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool, and I definitely want to learn a whole lot about what you're doing and and how you've taken that passion and and, and applied it on your Rome Ranch there in Texas. Um, but I do want to learn about this Epic Provisions because that's such a cool thing that you built early on. I mean, you kind of touched on it just a little bit there, like creating new supply chains. There wasn't just like a, oh, I don't know, a U.S. Foods or, you know, some sort of a distributor or wholesaler where you could probably get all the product to create a regeneratively sourced meat product. I mean, you had to develop this. Talk about that challenge, because I imagine that was real, especially when you talk about scaling. You can probably partner with one or two guys on a small scale. But when you start taking this thing national, I mean, there's some real growth pains, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we found that out immediately with the bison supply chain and so you know our Mm. bison bar and our bison products were our most popular products and um, within only a couple months of business we exhausted the entire supply chain of 100% grass-fed bison in Mm. North America and people (laughs) commonly think of bison you know like these ancient ice age species who are you know supposed to be on the Great Plains prairie ecosystems living their best life wild and free and and it turns out that 90 percent of the bison population or the bison species that goes into the meat supply chain is is fed grain and confined at the end of their lives and, and it's just something hmm. consumers are not aware of 90 percent of the entire bison herd in north america is fed with grain at the end of their lives and so that was kind of where we where we started 
um, because we said this this can't be. This is an iconic species. This is the national mammal of North America. You know, like <laughs> the architects yeah. of our most fertile food systems that the planet has ever seen were created in symbiosis with these species, these native species. And so, um, you know, it was funny, like it started um, with existing suppliers that were doing grass fed and providing long term commitments to where we provided um, the security of having an animal go into our supply chain at the moment it was born. And so that allowed ranchers to invest uh, in their operations, scale, maybe bring on new leases, maybe work on infrastructure, because they had a committed buyer three years before that animal was ready to be harvested. And at that point in time, too, yeah, we had conversations about, well, let's lock in a price today. Like, let's be fully transparent and make sure it works for you, make sure it works for your family and your land and your herd, as well as the business. And, and we can all win really big. And so that was the first lever that we pulled. And then, you know, the ability to scale that was bring new people into the bison community. So convert cattle ranchers who were maybe a little bit just disenchanted or tired of selling to a commodity market, or maybe they always just had kind of some interest in bison, uh, trying to get more family ranches to convert and help them along that journey in a similar fashion. Yeah. So then you, you, you started to grow this and you talked about like developing contracts for three years in advance. I mean, my wife and I do a direct marketing meat business right now, and I don't even know what my sales will be next year, let alone three years in advance. And to make a commitment to a farmer to say, I will buy your bison at whatever price you know he needs or what, as he dis- discovered this, this price that worked for them and worked for you. How do you make a commitment three years in advance while trying to grow a business and scale it across the country and not even certain maybe that it will be in business? I mean, that first of all, I suppose, just takes a tremendous amount of faith in yourself. But talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it, ultimately, it, it was the right thing to do. One of the founding reasons that we started Epic was to convert supply chains. So it was in our it was in our DNA. We had to do that to be authentic and true to the brand and to be able to drive large scale positive impact. And so, you know, it certainly was a, a, a unique business model, and it didn't always work. There were a bunch of times where we got burned, but then when it did work, it was amazing and it was mutual and everyone was able to celebrate and so yeah you you kind of nailed it though it it just took faith and trust and finding the right partners who were all in who were committed you know obviously that comes down to the american family rancher family farm where you're dealing with the land owner the people whose livelihoods depend on this right like we didn't want to contract with any multinational holdings or or like development groups that just wasn't our 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 passion and so being able to really support and and lift up the small american family farm was was where it was at yeah and that's that's really cool because i I feel like you hear that story of a lot of companies that start out with that integrity being you know a a really big piece of their business model of deciding they're going to source local you know they're going to source with a specific thing in mind. And as they scale, they're forced to compromise. It sounds like you were able to scale your business without compromise in that regard uh, and, and able to scale this nationally. Is, was that the case, I guess, or maybe I'm putting you on a spot or something too, but yeah, no, I mean, there was, there was definitely times where we had to kind of uh, check our values and, and, and go back to kind of those founding principles and make sure that we were 
complying with the original vision of the brand and the spirit mm-hmm. that we founded upon. And, you know, like one of the, one of the issues early on that, that we had to decide on was like, okay, we, we truly exhausted the entire supply chain of these hundred percent grass fed bison. Well, what do we do? This is our most popular product. Whole foods wants to take it nationally, but whole foods, we have to buy through an approved whole foods vendor. So part of the gap program, global animal partnership. Well, they don't have a single grass fed bison supplier approved for whole foods. So like, what, what do we do? And, um, yeah. And those were difficult decisions, but, you know, we kind of just had the faith that the more we were able to build relationships and the more that we were able to influence and be uh, important enough in the bison industry to get attention, then we could uh, we could drive more change long term. And so yeah. we, we did have like two SKUs early on. We had a 100% grass fed SKU and then a 100% natural SKU. And we weren't proud of that SKU. We just like we didn't eat it and it was a a part of the story when we're transparent about it we talked to it directly to consumers um and addressed it but it was just a part an important part of converting that supply chain yeah yeah no that that makes sense and uh is there any ever a point or maybe you did have a product that was non-bison as well but it seems like it might have been a whole lot easier to just try and build a product based around grass-fed beef instead of developing a whole new supply chain of grass-based bison <laughs> you know the hard things the hard things in life though tend to be the more uh, rewarding and satisfying and you know and for us yeah this was such a, a unique product that it just felt like um having unique proteins was still the way to go and we kind of still carry that same belief well at the ranch and then you know our new consumer packaged good brand called force of nature that's available nationally as we speak now that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you just try and compete with what's easy, I suppose, then there's really never, you're never going to be able to set yourself apart. And by going this route, you were most definitely able to set yourself apart. Although I'm sure it, it I mean, obviously it came with plenty of challenges. Well, to that point, I mean, that, 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 that's a beautiful thing. I think we need to, can't emphasize that enough. You know, like when we started Epic, those who have had the product, you know, there's a beautiful anatomical image of the animal front and center on the package right it's not like a a caricature it is like an audubon inspired image and so we wanted to honor the animal we wanted to represent it for what it was and connect consumers to the life that was sacrificed to nurse themselves and their families and that was really yeah counterintuitive right like you know as far as like you're saying differentiating ourselves differentiating our supply chain differentiating our story our package was intentionally differentiated to where if you were shopping on this protein bar aisle which lord this aisle is massive um, <laughs> yeah seeing yeah. it scanning oh shit i'm overwhelmed what do i buy it's like what the there's a bison staring at me what is that and so yeah just just taking that idea of disruption in incorporating it in every level of the brand was was a, a big part of our success. Yeah, and and clearly it was successful. You drew the eye of big companies interested in, in acquiring you, and eventually you did go that route. Why uh, why did you uh, end up deciding to do that, and and what did that look like as you as you started entertaining offers from people? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, good question. So, you know, in the first uh, four years, well, the four years that we ran that brand, we didn't build it to sell it. We kind of always recognized that if we found the right partner that could take our mission and accelerate it bigger and faster than we ever could, it would be a no-brainer. Within the 
four years that we ran the brand, we had four different opportunities to sell it. And the first three companies that tried to buy it, I mean, it was took only a couple hours before we said, absolutely not, hell no, beat it. And when General when General Mills reached out, you know, we we didn't know what to think. We honestly just were like, this is going to be a good story to tell our grandkids one day. And and so we went to Minneapolis, met with the executives and the team, and, and they were asking the right questions. They were asking us about, you know, what do we want our legacy to be? What what do you why did you start this business? What long-term impacts do you guys want to drive? They weren't asking about EBITDA or margin or revenue or exit strategy. That's the stuff we didn't care about. And so we just found this partner that had the ability, the supply chain, the resources to create massive scale and and mm-hmm. while staying authentic to the brand and the mission. And so that was kind of for us, like the time is now, you know, we built this to drive positive impact. We can change some massive impact through through mills and so you know been about four years later they're they're doing an awesome job with the brand keeping the integrity they haven't compromised anything they actually announced a commitment to uh, converting um a hundred uh what was it a hundred thousand acres of their conventional supply chain for uh, nature valley bars to regenerative and um and, and yeah, and so that was awesome. Like Epic served its role, and you know they have this product now in their portfolio, but they also have this uh, this like genetic information, like just working with Katie and myself and our team, where they got to learn about regenerative agriculture and land management and all the benefits of these things. And so they started to apply it to their other brands within the portfolio. And so that that's awesome for us. And and we're really excited and really proud of how they've adopted that brand. And have you stayed on with them since to kind of guide them and, and, and maintain that legacy and that uh, integrity that you put into it in the start? Yeah, we're, we're on the periphery. We're, we're out of the day to day. Um, there's really Mm -hmm. talented people, you know, that brand is way bigger than Katie and I ever um, imagined running it ourselves. And so there's great people in place and we get to just kind of be like, um, uh, on the sideline, whenever you know someone has questions about maybe product innovation, maybe about um, brand identity or evolution, we get to do the fun stuff that we like. Yeah, and and awesome because, like you mentioned earlier, you saw the benefit of this lifestyle of living and working on the land, and I imagine that this was a big part. You know, played a big role in allowing you to do that and do what you're doing today. Yep, a hundred percent. I mean, we didn't grow up on land. We didn't grow up with uh, access or resources to land, and so when we sold the brand, we just diverted uh, the money and we just purchased a ranch uh, in Central Texas, mm-hmm. and that's that's Rome Ranch. That's where we live now. I mean, I couldn't think of a more rewarding, more satisfying, real way to create wealth, but also like. Um, put wealth into something meaningful. Like everyone right now is talking about like, Oh, Bitcoin or, uh, the market or NFTs. I think that's all like for me, land is value and it's true value. And especially if that land is healthy and it can produce food and it can feed communities. Wow. Like what more is real and tangible than that? That can't get taken away. That will, that will serve you and your family for multiple generations. No, no doubt. It's it's interesting, yeah, because I I hear all the time, you know, all this hype of all these different things and everything and stuff. And you're right; it seems like land is 
is a good long-term investment, but just like it, it offers so much more than that too, that you're talking about, you're hitting on all the, all the things. I mean, legacy and, and connection to food and, and food production. I mean, it's such a wonderful thing that we as producers have this opportunity to connect on such a deep level with what we get to, you know, with, with what we do and, and with what we consume. So I appreciate that, but let's talk about Rome Ranch, uh, your place, your, your ranch there in Texas. Talk to me about the landscape, kind of your different enterprises and production models that you're taking on now. So, you know, we bought this ranch um, outside of Fredericksburg, Texas. This original area was settled in like 1848-ish. Um, and the the area that we were in, it would have been like the far, you know, as west as Texas was expanding before the Comanche Indians were rolling back uh, Western civilization. I mean, they were like a famed war tribe ferocious amazing fighters talented the most skilled horsemen horse riders you've ever seen in history and um literally you know reversing westward expansion and so we were in this is comanche territory and the state of texas when they were issuing land grants you know even before the state when this was part of mexico mexico was issuing land grants to basically create a, a human force field a barrier with comanche indians and so a lot of uh, immigrants, primarily from Germany, settled this area. And they were amazing at keeping treaties and developing relationships with these uh, Indian tribes. But, you know, what happened was we had Germans come to the area and see this landscape and try to manage it in a similar way of how historically they knew how to manage land. This area is a semi-brittle ecosystem. So we get 28 inches of rain a year. But... We can get eight inches in two days, and then it doesn't rain a drop for three or four months. Sure. I mean, that is common. Yeah, and inconsistent. <laughs> inconsistent, to say the least. And, you know, it's very common for two, three months out of the year that we can have 100-degree-plus days. And so, you know, your water cycle, your your nutrient cycle, your ability to cover bare soil has everything to do with your success in this region. And primarily, historically, the way that this land was managed that we bought for over 100 years, it was managed as monoculture farmland for cotton, wheat, soy, peanuts, milo, you name it. And so the, the ecosystem had collapsed. I mean, the natural resources had been extracted through monoculture, chemical agriculture, industrial, centralized, commoditized agriculture. And we saw this property and we're like, this is perfect. This, it doesn't get worse than this. You know, we're like less than half a percent of organic matter on our soil, uh, 100% bare soil. And let's let's use positive animal impact, holistic management, and let's regenerate this ecosystem. And, and let's take measurements. Let's contribute to the scientific literature. Let's bring community members out. Let's celebrate and inspire other ranchers in our community to participate in this food revolution. And so that was everything that was put into Rome as far as like the inception. And so we, we raise now bison, turkeys, broiler chickens, laying chickens, laying ducks, geese, uh, pigs, honeybees. And then, you know, at any given point in time, we have a couple hundred thousand eating hearts on the ranch in the form of native species and migratory species like Eastern meadowlarks, yeah, armadillos, great horned owls, ring-tailed cats. I mean, even mountain lions have been spotted on the ranch. And so 
you know, that they're a part of our ecosystem. They're a part of our, our ranch. We want to set a place at the table for all of those wildlife species to collaborate and participate in this very special vibrant ecosystem we're creating. And so we do consider that in our, in our overarching plan of how we're managing our land, how we're dividing our paddocks, how we are grazing our land and making sure that there's plenty of resources for those native species that, you know, co-evolve on this landscape. Wow. I, I love, well, I love a lot of that. It's all really, really cool. But I love that when you saw this landscape that was a wasteland, you know, kind of beaten down, degraded, that you saw it as opportunity for so much opportunity to regenerate opportunity to teach and to educate. I mean, did all of this, you know, these goals of what you're doing was there, were they there at the start? Or did you kind of develop them as you you had started working it that you wanted to bring in people and make wildlife habitat and do all these different species and, you know, share a story or, or was that intentional from the beginning? Yeah. The, the intention was set at the beginning, uh, with allowing ourselves the space to evolve, um, as our sure. land, uh, regenerated and was restored. And so not to fix on anything, but, you know, one, one big, uh, component of what we do and it's kind of a overarching principle uh, for soil health is it's biodiversity is key here and so we kind of talked about why we're biodiverse in our animal species but we're also very rich in our diversity for our plant-based species here at the ranch and you know that build that builds and adds resilience to to our business model here but then also we have diversity in our income streams which you kind of alluded to where we have a, a guided hunting program here year round. We have Airbnb accommodations. We have ranch tours for the public. We sell whole living animals for starter herds. We sell processed animals to consumers and to restaurants and, you know, you name it. We just have so many different enterprises that are, are funneling money, which we kind of think of that as like blood for the living organism that is our ranch. Um, and so it, it's just such a key component to our success and what we're able to do here. So when you got on this land base full of excitement and, you know, I, I'm sure just pumped about what you were going to do, uh, did it, did it go as planned? <laughs> were there unforeseen challenges? This, you know, I mean, I hear people, you know, purchasing similar things, just hoping to flat out grow, grow something and just nothing even grows. I mean, what was the reality of what you, uh, you saw and experienced on your place when you, you got there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good question. I mean, the re the reality we're, you know, we'll be fully transparent, you know, like we're not living the Instagram life every single day. It's <laughs> awesome. And we're crushing it. There's absolute hardships. And if you're not questioning your sanity and, you know, second guessing why the hell am I even doing this? Then, I, I don't know. You probably just don't care that much. Um, sure. And so, yeah, we we got our butts kicked for man three years hard. It was, it was a crash course, and we didn't come from agricultural background. You know, we didn't study, we didn't go to college for any kind of land management, farming, or livestock. And so, uh, it was hard to know where to begin. But where we learned the most was by looking into just that innate wisdom that mother nature provides us you know this blueprint in which through hundreds of thousands of years of evolution you know she's figured it out and in accepting that as humans you know like we're good at 
maybe creating complicated, understanding complicated systems, building engines, repairing airplanes, building tractors, like that's complicated. But when it comes to complex systems where there's interconnectedness, you know, synergism, mutualism, competition, it is damn near impossible to understand and, and, and make predictions. And, and, and so like for us, we kind of like always have tried to set the stage for mother nature to express forgiveness and reverence and, and do her thing. And so sometimes setting the stage, we were wrong and uh, we backtrack and maybe we kind of like uh, lost a little bit, but for the most part, you know, we, ha- we have like five key principles that we follow. And one of those we already talked about is encourage biodiversity, but yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. We wasted a lot of money on seeds when we came in and we thought, Hey, these old degraded farmed fields, let's create beautiful perennial tall grass native prairies. I mean, sounds pretty good, right? Well, guess what? Those native seeds, when we threw them out on the field, which they were very expensive, uh, they didn't recognize the degraded soil as, as native soil. I mean, like the biological inputs, the mycorrhizal fungi network, the normal pH of the soil had been altered. The structure had been altered. The topsoil was gone. We were already on subsoil. And so these species had no chance, right? These are higher secession species. And so, yeah, that first year we probably put out $10,000 worth of seed and maybe grew one, one, uh, one little blue stem. <laughs> we believe, we hope those seeds are still in the seed bank. They should be, but uh, we just haven't hit that right um, level of, of secession to where they can express themselves and they get that biological signal to turn on. And we're starting to see that. But yeah, the first three years have been like, we got to cover bare soil. Like we have to improve this water cycle. We have to improve the energy cycle. We just can't survive if we don't do that. So, you know, full focus mm-hmm. on biodiversity covering bare soil um, at, at yeah. any given cost. Sure. And, and I appreciate the honesty and, and the challenges that you've shown, because there is a reality to that. I think a lot of people, the the thing that scares people away from kind of practicing of some of this regenerative agriculture is like you talked about the complexity, um, conventional commodity agriculture, you know, it's kind of based around simplification of just eliminating all the variables and applying exactly what you need to get exactly what you want. And that works for what they're trying to do, I guess. But when you start taking, you know, trying to work with the variables of nature, not against them and eliminating them. I mean, it gets complex. And and then when you're trying to deal with a system that, you know, a lot of those those things that nature would have provided are no longer there due to past management, now, now you've added a new level of complexity. And so there's, there is a reality to the challenges of what we're trying to do. And I appreciate you sharing the, the realities that you've, you've experienced. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of value in in experiencing those times and hardships and having to problem solve. Um, Like I reflect and I I didn't, I don't, I wouldn't have wanted someone to come in kind of like you were saying with a industrial centralized commodity mindset and say, Hey, this is what you need to do. You need to put a couple hundred pounds of NPK out on this field. And then this herbicide, this insecticide, blah, blah, blah. Like that would have if we would have been open to that, that would have set us back and we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have learned. We wouldn't have been able to sit still and listen to this landscape because I feel like our ability to understand land, it's within all of us. 
you know, not many people, they've kind of disassociated or they, they've atrophied that ability to interpret and listen to land. But we are from the land. We are, we are carbon-based beings. We are children of the soil. Um, you know, all life begins in the soil and, and all life will end and return to the soil. And so we have a deep connection to land. And if you just sit still long enough, I do believe you can hear and you can feel what that landscape is telling you. And yeah, it might take a little bit of time to uh, interpret that, you know, um, but but that's the joy of it. And I think that's the beauty of it. And that's, I'm so grateful we were able to experience that firsthand, the, the highs and the lows of it. So now that you're a few years into this, what things are you seeing? And, and I think this is a really cool part of your story is like, I, I'm fortunate that I came out of a farm where my dad has been practicing a lot of these principles for decades now, which is awesome. The downside of that is similar to like how Gabe Brown share, you know, talks about with his story is that he didn't have a baseline. Looking back, we don't have something that we were able to base, you know, improvements off of because the things we were doing at the time were just kind of the next thing we weren't recording. And so you kind of have a unique perspective of having started recently with a lot of the information and, and education available to us now through the experience of all these people who have been doing it for decades. What are the things that you're seeing? as you, you start to progress and, and, and advance in your management? Oh man, this is, this is the coolest stuff. Like, you know, doing this monitoring, like you said, you know, it's something that everybody looks back on and like says, like, I wish I would have started, you know, earlier. <laughs> yep. um, what was I thinking? And so, I mean, truly anyone that's getting into agriculture or thinking about it, take pictures, do baseline soil monitoring, um, work with the Savory Institute to get some really robust data recorded on your land so you can track this stuff because it's so cool when you can look back on it and share that with your children, but also share it with other people in the community who might be a little bit skeptical, skeptical of what you're doing and if it works. And so, you know, we're looking at everything and, and we'll just like basic, you know, some of the highlight levels that seem to resonate with most people is year one, we were less than half a percent of organic matter in our soil, right? And so, wow, for, it, yeah, every one percent of organic matter you can build in your soil, you, each acre of land can hold 20,000 gallons of rainfall. So, it's like effectively, you know, in our semi brittle environment, it's not so much like how much rain did you get this year, but it's like, hey, when you got that four inch flash flood last weekend, how much of that did you capture? Right. And if, if your organic mm -hmm. matter is super low, it's just all leaving your property. It's all runoff and it's taking what little topsoil you have remaining. And so uh, year over year, we've improved our organic matter by about 30%, which is, which is awesome. I mean, those, those fields mm -hmm. that were less than half a percent, we have some fields that we're measuring at 3% now, uh, others that we're measuring at one and a half percent. But the really exciting part of that, and one of the reasons I like to talk about organic matter, it's, you know, it's like the biology, it's like the carbon that's supposed to be mm -hmm. in the soil. And there's so much benefit, like we talked about water infiltration and resilience for droughts, resilience for flash floods. But, you know, like the, the Paris Climate Accord, you know, and there are scientists way smarter than I am that have said, you know, if globally on existing agricultural land, we could improve uh, organic matter or soil carbon by 0.04%, we will be able to offset all man-made emissions annually. And so I'm like yeah. thinking about that. I'm like, 
that bar is so low because so low yeah <laughs> i mean holy smokes dude yeah i mean we can crush that out here with some of these land management principles and in a season yeah we can smoke it we can i mean if, if yeah. the bar is 0.004% or 0.04% and we're uh improving ours by 100% in 3 years that's incredible mm-hmm. like let's yeah. let's let's go like the the doom and the gloom that we're faced with is this global civilization and all these problems that are so severe and threatening our existence and survival on this planet can be resolved. Uh, we just have to get behind it collectively and, and the potential is there. Like, we can do this fast if we can get everyone on board. Why do you think it is that it's not so, you know, I mean, they're not people doing it, that it's not as widespread popular as you one might think especially with now as more and more people are proving out that it can be done so so easily and so quickly yeah that's that's a good question you know i just think it, there's so many different answers i think ultimately a lot of our dysfunction as a human species and our relationship to mother nature can be attributed to our, our separation from soil it can be attributed to our separation from land and separation from the food that we depend on for survival because once that's all been outsourced you just have no perspective and um so i think consumers are really at fault you know consumers since the industrial revolution have really opted out of that virtuous food system and they've they've demanded the the commoditization, the centralization, the industrialization of food to where cost is the most important decision for them and their purchasing habits. And, you know, as a country, we spend less on food annually as a percent of our overall household income than any other country on the planet that I'm aware of. And so Mm -hmm. it's just this like deeply ingrained mentality that has to change with consumers but consumers have to reconnect with the land and then they have to reclaim that legacy of agriculture and livestock and farming systems and use them in a really beautiful, virtuous way that's in harmony concert with mother nature. So starts with the consumer and it starts with reconnecting um, with our origins, reconnecting with the soil. Yeah. And you have a unique perspective coming from the food production or from production and also just a food brand you know, producing a high quality, high value product that a lot of people wouldn't maybe, you know, a lot of people aren't willing to pay. I mean, there's a reason that that the commodity system is in place and and it's kind of a cheap food or at least a cheap dollar value, whether the costs are all truly allocated in it or not is another story. But, you know, a cheap food question, you you built a high value, high dollar food product and, and were successful with it. How can we get more consumers to value their food in the way that you are able to with Epic Food Provisions or Epic Provisions? Yeah, that's uh, that's the holy grail that we need to figure out. And every consumer has that different trigger for what's valuable and most important to them. But what I believe, what I've seen through our experience and our different iterations of this message and trying to package it to where consumers get it or they care, I think you just have to talk about human health. That's that's the starter point because everyone should care about their own nutrition, the food that they feed their bodies, the food that they feed their families. This is what you know keeps you healthy or keeps you sick. It's the foundation of health. And so to be able to pay for food that has more 
phytonutrients, more minerals, um, better macros. I mean, that's like um, consumers will spend so much money on supplements, right? It's like selenium and magnesium and boron supplements, but it's our multivitamins. Like, you know, you can get all that in food. It's supposed to be in your food. You just have to have the functioning soil to fix those minerals to the plants. And then the animals need to graze those plants, right? And so that's a cool, interesting point to to change people's mindsets on food and the value of properly grown food. And, um, and, and, and consumers are willing to pay for that. If, if they believe that the food that they're going to eat makes them healthier, makes them more resilient, keeps them out of the medical system. I mean, especially at this weird point in history where like human health globally is plummeting and like people are, are, are freaking out about global pandemics and viruses. But like one of the things we should be able to learn from that is like underlying human health is so important. Like our own body's innate wisdom and ability to heal ourselves through, you know, proper gut biome, not being obese, not having multiple comorbidities. It's like a lot of these um, chronic inflammatory diseases, they can all be controlled with, with food. No, that's fascinating. I kind of apologize. I got us off on a track away from your ranch again, and I want to get back to that. So what are the things that you've seen? You, you said you're starting to see success. I mean, huge success, increasing organic matters by anywhere from one to 2% in the amount of time you've been doing this. That's tremendous. Uh, what are the things that are, you've found to be successful, I guess? Or, or maybe another way to phrase this question would be is if somebody was in your shoes buying a degraded property and was like, I'm going to do this, you know, what were the things you wish you had known when you started that, that have ended up being successful to kind of avoid some of those failures early on? Oh yeah. I mean, I'll, you already mentioned Gabe Brown, but he's definitely a hero of mine. And, um, I think just a true pioneer in uh, regenerative agriculture. And, and he partnered with a NRCS legend named Ray Archuleta, who, um, these two, the amount of wisdom that they have, uh, between them is incredible, but you know, they kind of came up with these like five principles of soil health. And so this is where I would encourage every producer to begin. And and it's even beyond producer. I mean, we have so many people from metropolitan areas that have like um, a quarter of an acre or an eighth of an acre for their yard. And they want to adopt some of these regenerative principles. And so the beauty of these five soil health principles is that they work everywhere on the planet they work, you know, on 100,000 acres in West Texas to, you know, like quarter of an acre in upstate New York. It's just beautiful. And so those things are encourage biodiversity on your property, cover bare soil, minimize disturbance of your soil. So that's either through mechanical or chemical inputs, green growing plants year round, right? Like this idea of a growing season and a dormant season, you're missing the point. You can be growing something. You can be uh, capturing atmospheric carbon, uh, atmospheric nitrogen, really utilizing the photosynthetic process of plants year round. You have a cool season and a warm season. So utilize that through cover crops and make sure your cover crops are multi-species like we already talked about. And then that fifth principle is you have to incorporate positive animal impact. A system does not function in mother nature's wisdom and brilliance without animals as part of it so this whole idea of like removing meat from your diet to fight climate change or to like be more sustainable that's a myth as a matter of fact if you removed animals from landscapes eventually those landscapes would deteriorate and decline because 
our most fertile landscapes co-evolved with large herds of ruminant animals. And then after those ruminant animals like bison would graze and positively impact that land, well, billions of migratory birds would come in. They would scratch through the manure and they would debug the manure and then they would deposit a unique type of fertilizer and more nitrogen-rich monogastric uh, fertility into the pasture of that grassland. So animals are key component. So those are the five principles. That's where you got to start. And if you can do that year over year, you will make changes in the right direction. Well, I'm impressed whenever I try to you know, label them off whenever I'm on the spot and say, all right, here's the five principles. I always butcher them or forget one. So well done. <laughs> you, know, you, you got them all. Um, and, and also you're right on with the livestock. I mean, it, just in evidence in our situation, we've, you know, as we've expanded and picked up some farms here, some of the most struggles that we've had with land that we've picked up over the years is land that's been sitting idle for 10, 15 years. So a lot of times in CRP, just, you know, this conservation reserve program is some of the most biologically dead soils we have because it was sat idle without the use of grazing and livestock. And so, yeah, it, it's amazing. And, and what in practice has this looked like on your land? How have you integrated these principles, recognizing that, you know, our listeners are all over the country and even the world, so it may not apply in the same way on their properties, but what are the practical applications of these principles that have been successful on your ranch? Sure. A good example of the a couple principles at a time and what we did for them. So to address the bare soil um, on our old farm fields, right? So we, we stopped using chemical inputs. We stopped using mechanical tools. So we stopped disturbing the soil, uh, allowed that biology to begin functioning at a higher level, but we had to cover that bare soil. And so we rolled out hay which, you know, hay came from neighboring ranches. When we view hay, we think of hay as like importing fertility. You know, we're taking carbon from someone else's ranch and we're importing it to ours. So we're building fertility. We'll roll that hay out to cover bare soil and then we'll, we'll graze bison or ruminant animals on top of that. And so those animals trample that carbon into the soil. So it's accessible to biology, but they also cycle that carbon through their rumen in a really unique way um, and create more of a biologically ava- available uh, fertilizer, and then that gets cycled back into the soil. And um, and then, you know, you just have other benefits of that positive animal impact. So just in that one example, we're doing positive animal impact, we're doing covering bare soil, and we're addressing uh, the disturbing soil, right? No longer using mechanical or chemical inputs. So that's a really good example. Another example is, you know, once we start getting some some biomass growing some fertility back in that field then we'll plant a diverse cover crop and we plant it twice a year we do a cool season and a warm season cover crop and these are multi-species mixtures of grasses legumes forbs i mean you name it we'll do eight to 12 different species and all these species have an intention like our legumes you know they're going to be nitrogen fixing taking that atmospheric nitrogen, depositing it into the soil for us. They're also um, inoculated before they are put in the soil. And so they have some type of mycorrhizal fungi attached to the seed, which is great. So we start building that bank. You know, our grasses, their primary role is to improve the structure of the soil through really robust root systems, as well as cover bare soil and create wildlife habitat and provide forage for our animals. And so now you're seeing kind of another example in real life of like, well, how do you grow green growing plants year round, right? Like, no, no, don't, don't till your field and, and leave it fallow all winter. Grow like 
winter rye, peas, veg, legumes, you know, it's, it's something that anyone can do. And so those are just some really practical examples of how those five principles are used on the ranch. Yeah, no, I love it. And I, I, I always struggle. We're already coming up on an hour here soon and I feel like I can talk for many more, but I want to respect your time and, and also respect the listeners. But I'm curious because of your experience with food and I keep coming back to this food brand and stuff that I, I, I want to tap into that wealth of knowledge that you have and see if you have tips for producers who will want to do something similar. And that could be direct marketing, a bunch of meat products like you have. You mentioned, I don't even know, a dozen different meat products that you're raising and stuff that I imagine you have to sell somewhere or creating a new food brand like you did with Rome Ranch. And, and I know these are probably two very different routes or something, but how would you recommend that they develop those market channels, either direct to consumer, working with a wholesaler or working with some sort of a, a person who's developed the market like you did with Rome or, or something or with Epic? Uh, you know, how do you encourage people to do that? Because this diversity of livestock species is great, but it's difficult if you don't have anywhere to go with it. And, and a lot of times that's the bottleneck. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you don't have anywhere to go with it, you, you typically sell that into a commodity market, right? Where you're you're at auction or, or these beautiful, brilliant, mm-hmm. nutrient-dense animals that were allowed to fulfill their innate biological potential, positively impact the land, positively impact consumers. Like you don't want that going into a commodity system where, you know, like it's just a live auction scenario where it's just getting kind of like lumped into a feedlot cow right next to it. And, and it's probably not profitable either at that point. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And the producer's just not extracting the full value of that animal. So I get it. Like ranchers, farmers typically are unbelievable land stewards, unbelievable um, at livestock welfare. And um, they're just not that interested in marketing. But it's really important, uh, as you've already outlined. And so you know, for, for us and what I would, you know, just encourage producers maybe as a follow-up, if you want to learn more, we, so our, our, our latest company, it's called Force of Nature. And, you know, it, Force of Nature addresses this very question that, that you brought up. And its inception was we have thousands of visitors out to the ranch every year. A lot of community people just want to learn. And the biggest question we get asked is like, as a producer, how can I be a part of this system? And then consumers are asking I want to support this system. Where do I begin? And so Force of Nature was founded on these regenerative principles and connecting consumers to producers that are doing the right management of land in the sense that they're enriching their natural resources. And so um, at Force of Nature, that's that's a great spot to start. We, we're building a, a, a global supply chain of regeneratively managed livestock, multi-species. Again, we sell bison, we sell beef. We're about to get into the lamb business, but we also sell things like wild boar and elk and venison. And so, man, reach out to us. Um, look in, look into that brand for inspiration and just see, see what force of nature is doing. And I would highly encourage you, if you are a producer that's fed up with currently going through a, a commodity system, please reach out to us because we're looking for talented, passionate land stewards who share the same values and want to be a part of a really special agricultural revolution. We can't do it without the producer. We can't do it without the consumer. And so force of nature is connecting the producer and the consumer for the first time in history to 
to really accelerate the scaling of this really important form of agriculture. Well, I love that, and I'm excited. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to talk to you about that for sure. Oh, <laughs> dude, let's do it. That's yeah. I mean, this is this is the biggest challenge I think is you know providing a market that allows people to do this because you know it, it's great if I could get chickens and lamb and guinea and pigs and everything out of my land, I would love that. But I, while my wife and I are working to build our market, it's a very real challenge to be able to scale that, and so. And, and and like you addressed, a lot of people just aren't interested. So I, I really am excited that you are tackling that that challenge, trying to work in that intermediary between the consumer and the, the producer um, that hopefully will result in a you know profitable system for the in a system that allows profitability for the producer to actually engage in these practices and these principles on their land. So absolutely. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I feel like people are, are kind of like embarrassed to say profitable, but if it's not profitable, then why the hell would anyone adopt these practices? Yes. And so it, yep, it, has exactly. to, it has to be able to feed the family. It has to be able to be a no brainer for the management of the land to be done in a regenerative way. And, and yeah, yeah, Jared, we should absolutely follow up with the conversation because it, it brings us a lot of joy to work with. Yeah. Independent uh, family ranches yeah. um, and get to know and tell those stories. Awesome. Let's do it. Before we wrap up, I, and that was one thing I wanted to give you an opportunity. If there's anything else you wanted to plug uh, your website, how can people stay in touch with you? Um, and then after that, I want to get uh, tap into a few resources that you might recommend. So uh, yeah, where can people reach you? And do, is there anything you want to plug to, to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say um, please learn more about our, our newest effort to build that regenerative supply chain on a, on a global level. And so you can learn more at forceofnature.com and uh, learn a little bit more about the brand, see some of the products we offer and vote with your consumer dollars for a virtuous system that creates positive change globally. I mean, why would you not want to do that? Don't want to do that. Maybe you should see a therapist or something. I don't know. <laughs> and so uh, that would be uh, a good start. And then, man, resources. I, I still think my favorite book I've, I've read has been Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. Um, it's just yeah. it's just really inspiring. I just... I love like this one part of it that resonates with me. He says, you know, he, he came from a conventional industrial farming background. He just woke up one morning and said, you know what? I'm, I'm done waking up to kill shit. Like I don't want to just yeah. like, constantly combating life anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel mm-hmm. like the wisdom that he shares in that book is, is probably the best place to begin your journey. Sure. Great, great book. And, and is one of my top two uh, was, replaced by a different book, kind of on a different topic, uh, the, the, the a turnaround, a rancher story, more on the business side of ranching, but definitely that Gabe Brown book is, is right up there. It's such a great resource that's readable. I think read it in uh, two days, passed it off to my wife. She read it in a day and, and gave it to my dad and he read it on an airplane ride. So it's, <laughs> it's very readable. That's but awesome. I, I appreciate that. Um, Taylor, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and and your just sharing your experience and your wisdom with our listeners. It's really an incredible story that you have. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Jared. And uh, let's be in touch. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.